Hi, I'm Chris Ryan. This is the Humanity First podcast, one with Bamsey CEO Peter Evers. And Peter, today I want to examine you know the effect that society has felt as a result of COVID from a workforce perspective. And I think that we have seen forced adoption that is going to change the landscape of how work exists in certain ways, but is also going to raise a lot of questions as to why um, certain things have not been rewarded in regard to pay and essential workers moving forward. In your view, what have been the major societal shifts that we have seen so far and can predict for the future? Thanks, Chris. And I think it's a really important topic as we're coming over. We're coming off a uh, yet another uh, surge with yet another variant and not really much um, knowledge about what the, where that next one's coming from. I think your question is a really interesting one, but I see it in two parts. Because when you look back two years ago, and believe it or not, we're just a month away from the real anniversary of the first lockdown, um, what did we see? We saw the disruption of a society that we'd all got particularly used to. We, got, we, we have uh, an environment, a work environment, where people work really hard in this country. And whenever you talk about Americans in the world, they always say they're the hardest working people. Uh, but at what cost? And I think the disruption point was when we went into lockdown and people couldn't work and people began to think, well, what is this culture of work all about and how does that affect my mental health? How does that affect my relationships with my family and my friends? And how does that affect the fact that we actually have a finite time on uh, on this planet? Um, and we've seen the great resignation. Eight million people have decided that they're not coming into the workforce. A, uh, a third of all pilots uh, at the beginning of the pandemic retired, took early retirement. Um, massive walking away from a workforce, massive thought from people about, you know, how is my life, how can my life be better? Uh, and people are not coming back into the workforce uh, as people thought that they would when unemployment benefits were restricted, that kind of stuff. So there's that. But there's also this recognition of value in the in the work that essential workers do. It was a moment in time, in my estimation, that we had to, that we recognized that the people that keep this country running are not the billionaires um, uh, and the and the hyper rich. It are those people who were brave enough to get out of bed in the morning and go and open up the the stores, um, walk into emergency rooms that were full of people who were dying, and in our case, uh, living in programs for two weeks at a time to prevent uh, our persons of being infected. And there was this massive upswell of respect and and uh, of love, if you like. You know, all over Europe, people would clap for the health workers at six o'clock every night. Uh, we did things that brought into alignment, in my uh, opinion, the worth of what people are doing. So the long-term effects, as you ask, it's interesting, isn't it? Because are we going to be able to sustain that appreciation uh, and that respect for those essential workers going forward in the most important way, which is the way that actually reimburses or pays those people in a way that makes sense in terms of the worth that they have to our community. And how do we do that without sort of sinking back into some of our old ways of thinking, perhaps, which is that this is not work that is valuable or valued in terms of what people get? I want to delve a little bit into you know the American psyche at this point in time, these two 
different um, areas, but basically on the same issue. The first one is I think that Americans are not coming back to work the way they did before um, on a you know, percentage basis. I think that Americans have um, seen a generational shift in how work is viewed, and it's never been a better time to be an employee. And companies that adopt um, that philosophy of employee first, uh, you know, human resources, and recognize you know the position of strength that employees have are going to be the ones that survive moving forward. Because for years, the mantra was, and we were all raised to work for someone. That's what our grandparents did. That's what our, our parents did. But coming out of the, the Great Recession, the question has you know, been asked more and more, and I think has been reinforced by COVID, as to you know, what do we want with our lives? And it used to be you, know, you worked hard, you moved up, and then that was um, – that was basically the American dream. But Americans are wanting more than that. They are still wanting to work hard. They're still wanting to earn a paycheck, but they want to have a, um, they want to have a work-life balance. And that is a phrase that we're going to hear so much mm-hmm. moving forward. So you know, people thinking that we're going to head backwards, um, we will perhaps eventually and in certain areas, but there has been a amount of wealth amongst the middle class which has been um, – been able to be built up over generations at this point, which is going to allow for different life choices for people for you know, 20, 30 years, again, speaking generally, 20 to 30 years to come. And then maybe there'll be a shift once um, there is a need for you know, people to, to work and a shift in you know, the leverage that the employer has over the employee. But right now, it's the exact opposite. The employee has more leverage than they have ever had, uh, in my view, in this country's history. And it's basically been built amongst, amongst and by a collective will of people to want to have a better work environment that fits in what they want to do with their personal lives, and they don't want to work from the cradle to grave. And they've seen that happen to you know, their parents, their grandparents, and they're wondering, was that a life well lived? And life is more important now than than work, and the work-life balance has been shifted in that uh, direction. Well, if you look at the 1950s, they, all, they also they always talk about the golden age of the of the American worker and, and indeed the European worker as well. This is a time when people were flooding into the workforce. There was rejuvenation. There were um, um, monies made available, like ARPA, if you think about it back then, post Second World War, uh, and reinvestment uh, in the infrastructure of the country, all gave people. Uh, meaningful work uh, also gave people pensions, and you know we, we think about pensions now. They're really restricted to uh, a certain amount of people, people, you know, police and fire and and state, city employees. But most everybody else, let's face it, is pretty much out on their own in terms of what employees can contribute. Of course, Bamsey does contribute um, to people's um, retirement accounts, um, but many people don't. So there's been this gradual disengagement in terms of profit margin and what people, what industry can make from the the employment of the individual. People used to stay a whole career and then and then and then retire from that company. I think about the telephone company as the classic example of that, uh, and the split with the baby bells back in the early '80s. Things have changed. Uh, and, uh, loyalty to employer has changed completely because of that. Uh, and then people are beginning to think. I think it's a great point. 
point, Chris, people are looking back and saying, look, that was a golden age. This is not necessarily a golden age. And when our hardest working, most uh, impactful staff are having to work two and sometimes three jobs in order to live in a city like Boston, for instance, and even Brockton nowadays in terms of house prices, there's got to be some sort of break there. And it is up to employers um, to make sure that they are the that they have the big advantage, we talk here, Bamsi, about the big advantage. What can we do to show somebody that we're interested in their past, their future, and the present? What they bring to the table in the compact? How can we invest in people's careers? How do we make people think that they're coming to work not just to work the third shift on a Thursday, but the investment in that individual is a career that might not necessarily be with Bamsey, but they feel like they've been cared for and supervised and treated well. Uh, and they feel that they can stay in this profession because there's no question that we are a growing – we have a growing population of need. When you think about the – let's just take mental mental health – this country is not very well mentally at, the, at this moment. You know, children have missed school. Um, they, are, they have felt very isolated. The elderly are even more isolated. You know, most, um, most American elderly people are lonely and isolated. How do we address that? And we know what comes with that, early, early death uh, and depression. Um, we need all the tools and all the people that we can right now to restore the health of this na- this nation, which I believe is the real long-term effects of long COVID, if you like. I think you make a great point about pensions, where whether it's a, a private business or even um, you know a, a public entity, like the first thing that they talk about when um, they're looking at profit margins and bottom lines is the dead weight that the pensions have. And for a while, um, not offering a pension was something that you know, businesses didn't really have to do. It'll be interesting to see if your pensions start coming back and if that's something that uh, that employers will do to try to entice employees. Because let's face it, one of the – there are only two – I shouldn't say this, but I will. There's, there's only literally two significant benefits to having you know, full-time – employment in the same place for a longer period of time uh, on a financial side there's obviously cultural things that mm-hmm. are great and people enjoy being with the people they're working with and so but on a financial side is a pension and your health insurance mm-hmm. and if you have a business that offers neither or one or the other it's not really all that enticing to an employee to do that versus work for themselves make their own hours um you know work for 10, out, 10, 20 hours a week, and then sell some things on eBay, do some sports betting, whatever, in order to try to offset the income. That And that's that's the way American mm-hmm. workers are thinking at this point in time. And there are people who've been, who retired during the course of the pandemic who are 55 years old and have said, "Just I just don't want to go back to the office anymore. Mm-hmm. I'll you know move my stocks around here and there and massage some income with sports betting or whatever else in order to try to um, to keep this lifestyle that I enjoy, going out and walking each day or you know kayaking or whatever the case may be so i don't think the american worker is is going back and i think that more and more people leaving college and of that age moving forward are going to want to you know work for themselves now the other issue that there's two major issues you mentioned as well in mental health and our essential workers um i feel that 
we saw something at the beginning of the pandemic that has not in any way, shape, or form uh, continued throughout the course of it, and that it was the respect and love for essential workers, whether it was the people um, working in hospitals, uh, nurses, um, you know, care providers, uh, or people at the grocery store. Um, while America was told to stay home, the essential workers went to work each day, and that was you know, a, a narrative that was pretty strong. But now I think that that's completely changed, and I feel that um, our essential workers feel as though they're going to work on a day-in, day-out basis and that there's no respect or love for, for them uh, from a societal standpoint or from a, um, a financial standpoint. Yeah, and I think that's somewhat short. The, the short-term memory of, uh, of, of the human being, you know, we are not out of this. Um, you know, uh, as an example, our own agency uh, had 160 people in the last two weeks who tested positive for the Omicron variant. Now, most of those people are back at work now. Thank goodness, you know, they've had their five-day quarantines. But we don't know what's coming next. Um, and I do think that it is incredibly short-sighted to lose sight of the fact that a, a certain group of our population who are um, vulnerable because of their low uh, economic status were the people that pulled us through this. And, you know, we talk about whether whether government um, intervention should um, make a difference for those people. I believe it should. I believe that as we negotiate our new contracts with the state, because most of that money does come from the tax base, um, the our government, our state and our federal government should be acknowledging that and saying people, and Bernie Sanders says this a lot, nobody should have to work 80 hours a week in order to be able to feed their family and pay their rent. Uh, and, you know, we need to pay attention to that if we're going to have a just and equitable society which recognizes the importance of the work that everybody does rather than, as we have at this moment, this whole notion of uh, very few people being super rich. And when I say super rich, it's money that even a generation ago one couldn't imagine that one person is worth, you know, $200 billion. It just doesn't make sense to a fair and equitable society. And I do. Uh, my, my optimism is that we've come so far that it's so obvious these days that those inequities need to be addressed. And they'll be addressed individually. They'll be in, ad, addressed with companies. You know, you've already seen some companies making bid decisions about diverting more money to the workforce. We've done it here. We made a, uh, a, we made a gamble uh, that we would increase pay for our uh, direct care staff by up to 20%. We didn't have the money p to pay for it, but it was the right thing to do. And I think there's a lot of that going on in our culture at the moment. Yeah. And there's this constant you know, debate, obviously, about what the role of government should be. I mean, we can look out and say, well, this is wrong and it needs to be fixed. There needs to be a universal basic income. There needs to be government coming in and saying, you know, artificially you have to raise the minimum wage to a certain level. But there's also, you know, the aspect of um, the free market economy and capitalism that has made America, America. And do you try to find a balance between those two? Do you step in and say, no, government, this shouldn't be happening. So government needs to do this. So far, the government has not stepped into that degree, and even getting a um, a living wage or a um, increase to you know the minimum wage has been challenging for state legislators, let alone being a non-starter basically at the 
at the federal level. So what should where should the you know where should things fall? Um, we have as a public have made a decision of you know using our dollars to speak for what, what our interests are. Um, but in some circumstances, that can't really happen. Like you don't really have a decision as a, uh, a healthcare consumer, if you will, as to where your dollars go. Um, and very often those dollars go to the very top of, of an entity. Certainly we make decisions to purchase certain things, um, to attend events, and you know, those folks are compensated very highly for that in the entertainment realm very often. But you know, I don't the, – one of the reasons that there haven't been real you know, solutions to these problems is that there aren't any crystal clear solutions that align with the values and concept and idea of America that is uniformly agreeable. And a universal basic income you would think would be something that would be – you know, pretty much universally agreeable. You know, rob, rob the rich to, to give to the poor, um, <laughs> but you know that is not really you know in the view of many um, the American way. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good a good point. You could also argue that you're making or um, or ensuring that the rich pay their fair share, which is a, is a different way of coming at it than robbing the rich and paying the poor. I actually believe in that concept because we have a tax system that is very beneficial to those people who have wealth. And also, the one of the big myths about about America, and I, I can see people cringing right as I say this because I'm not from here, but I am I an American citizen, um, is this notion of equity uh, that that America uh, built a capitalist society where everybody benefited. Well, okay, a few generations later in Boston, the average wealth of a black family, uh, everything included is about $400, which is something like 50 times less than a white family in the same city. Uh, that didn't happen because of equity. It was inequity that has forged um, those differences. And I think people are beginning to realize that. You know, there is a uh, an increase in the consciousness of many Americans around this notion of racial inequity. But we're two tribes right now, Chris. I mean, you know, that's how I, if, if I was outside of this country, I would see two tribes warring. Um, you know, the question of civil war has been um, has, has been raised a number of times. What it's not going to be a typical. It won't be like an old civil war. But I do think we're facing towards. We're racing towards these differences. You know, having some sort of enormous explosive effect when you get half of the population who believes really strongly in this notion of lack of government um, uh, intervention, liberty. yeah, individual uh, ability to do what you want, uh, and this idea that everybody is equal uh, versus the other tribe who really are beginning to recognize that the inequities, uh, inequities in society have to be addressed. I don't know how that's going to end up, but I'm going to be a very interested bystander and activist, I think, going forward as we really do sort of blow the the horn for um, a, a a fair day's pay for an amazing day's work. Yeah, I think you know, looking at it from afar and looking at our two sides of the left and the right at this point, um, you see individuals that very often traffic in hyperbole and can't agree on basic sets of facts. And what folks have to understand is that 
they may be the voices that are talked about the most, but um, they're not the average everyday person's voice. Um, the overwhelming majority of Americans do not believe in what the far left or the far right want. They want both sides to come to the middle to find common sense solutions that align with American values. And um, that is what has stopped. That is what is not happening. That is when our country has been at its best. It's been pragmatic, slow, but has uh, marched towards equality and, and justice in a way that makes sense for America and our values as a country. That's not happening now. And, you know, we have two sides that look at the same issue and can't agree on, you know, what the basic facts are of that issue. So it's completely impossible to have any sort of an argument or discussion, let alone uh, a common sense solution come from it. So what I think that um, Americans and, you know, folks here in the Commonwealth and across the region are actually looking for is uh, for there to be folks that will step across the aisle and speak up to the loud voices and say enough is enough. There are things that have to take place. We need to value our our workers and people who are doing uh, essential work on the front line the same way that we have valued our military in the past when they have gone overseas to fight wars, or there will not be individuals to do those jobs moving forward. And that's another thing that's been lost is a feeling of doing things for the greater good, mm -hmm. doing something that is for the best of all people, that is the best for America or for Massachusetts. That is what is is missing right now in our national dialogue. Everything is about what is best for that person in that moment to achieve what they want and then to move along to the next office. Um, and you know, we who are in the middle have to start staking claim to our country again, or it will get dragged to the uh, to the fringes. Yeah, I agree, and I think you know it is also true that we. We have gone to extremes in hate as well. Uh, we've changed our hate culture. I'm always reminded of that Talking Head song that says, we don't want freedom, we don't want justice, we want someone to love. Um, and we've got to rise above that. We've got to fight for the things that are external to the things that are immediate to us because those things will have eventually come and impinge on our own lives. I'm always amazed at how the left and the right um, spew hatred when actually – um, and this is going to be controversial, but I'm going to say it. I've just read a book about QAnon um, because QAnon fascinates me because on the face of it, you think there are people talking about blood drinking. There are people talking about um, pedophilia. Anybody who is a Democrat is a pedophile. Uh, just ignore that for a second and actually look at the under, underlying issues that QAnon is worried about. And it is sort of similar to what the left is worried about, that, that – um, that massive amounts of wealth have been hoarded by very, very few people who have the ability to to manipulate society. Well, right. I mean that it's that, also people have lost hope and are willing to you know believe in just about anything. And that aspect of the human dynamic to me is always you know fascinating. But you know I've said for for years um, I look back at the 2016 New Hampshire primary and the two winners were. A, resoundingly, Bernie Sanders mm -hmm. and Donald Trump, mm -hmm. both had very different solutions to the problems, but both spoke to the problems consistently and for the most part didn't have any real solutions to the, <laughs> to the problems that existed, but were very, very good at pointing out those problems and placing blame on uh, 
external individuals for why that took place um, and ostracizing those those folks. And uh, that's a really good point in that what connects the far left and the far right is pretty substantive. But what they um, they're able to find these wedge issues in which they spew hate at one another. And instead of seeing that they have a commonality of interest and let's figure out how to solve these issues, they fight with each other on wedge issues and things that are kind of outside what their center beliefs are. Right. And if anybody wants a comedic um, uh, version of that, it's Saturday Night Live when Tom Hanks plays the um, the white farmer from the Rust Belt. And I can't remember who plays the uh, – it's on a quiz show. And the, and, and on, from the black and the white perspective, they end up thinking, good Lord, we agree, we agree with, it, with each other on these massive uh, issues. And I really believe that's true. I believe also that there are – there are parties that manipulate that message. Uh, and when we lose track of the truth, when we lose track of the facts, as you said earlier on, Chris, it makes it really diff- difficult to have a conversation with someone where you will find a common ground. And I believe that you can find common ground with any human being on this planet uh, if you try. You know, you are probably six six sentences away from finding something in common with somebody. And if you demonize those people, if you make it clear that they are hated because of their beliefs, you know, beliefs. even take anti-vaxxers, for instance. I hear people who are uh, vaccinated saying the most awful things about those people. You know, well, you know, if they die, it's their fault. Why are we taking – these are human beings who have an opinion. Now, debate the debate public health against individual uh, rights. That's a really good discussion. That's actually at the heart of everything we're talking about. Rather than say, well, you know, you're, you're a demon because you won't get vaccinated because you're going to kill my grandmother – that's not going to help this conversation. We just need to be able to listen as much as we talk. And I think that's what's missing at the moment. I agree with what you said to some extent about being able to find commonality with, with anyone. Um, I think that you can always find commonality um, if the other person has something to to lose and gain. And I've had many you know, conversations with um, – folks who are experts in this realm, whether it's Navy SEALs or somebody like Bill Richardson, who for years would um, be the lead negotiator for the uh, Clinton White House in talking to folks like uh, Kim Jong-un or talking to uh, Saddam Hussein. And basically the first thing he would do going into any circumstance is that he would try to find commonality with them, something that they liked, and they would talk about that to start things off. And then he would start to gauge, you know, where he could go with a particular negotiation, whether it was negotiating for the release of prisoners or whatever else where he had something he clearly wanted. He has to figure out what the opposition really wants and then figure out how to uh, either come to common ground on an agreement or where he can get leverage. So I don't think you can you know, negotiate with anyone. If someone is um, in a mental state where, um, you know, there's no reason or logic, I don't think you can negotiate with that type of person. That's a different conversation. Right. Of but, which I'm quite familiar right. with. Right. <laughs> Very familiar, which is why I was – I understood what you're saying generally. But, you know, there's – in this environment, um, and I've experienced this firsthand, I mean, there's, there's some people that will just – you can't 
talk with them. So you can't negotiate with them or go anywhere with it because they will just continually, you know, scream the same thing over and over mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's certain disarming mechanisms you can you can use, but um, and you can do so over a period of time. But it's very challenging, you know, if you're unable to communicate with someone because of the mental state that they find themselves in. And but generally, I, I do believe that. Well, I think it, I, I think this is a good conversation because this is the worst in in my years on this planet um, where I've had any idea of what's going on. Um, this is the worst time in terms of people being polarized. Um, I think my point was that you know the the classic example of when your sort of um, right wing racist uncle comes for Thanksgiving, right? you are forced into intimacy in that sense with that person. What do you do? Do you decide that you're just going to yell at each other over the turkey? Maybe. But I think what happens in the end are those commonalities between you is blood and, you know, the fact that you've just had a niece that was born three weeks ago who is the spit image of Uncle Joe. Uh, there's a commonality. There's That's what you focus on. And as you build those little blocks of understanding uh, and and compassion, um, and the ability to, to to communicate on those tiny things, I believe those are the little Lego pieces of, of getting towards the ability to then have a rational, reasonable argument with something about that bigger than that, which is, you know, uh, white fragility, <laughs> which I wouldn't be arguing with Uncle Joe, but or, or um, you know, political differences, those kind of things. Um, it is as bad as I've ever seen it, but I still re- retain some hope that we've got to come closer together. Right. I mean, you have to peel back the layers. And the reason that this person is screaming at you is probably not because of, um, or probably not in totality because of what is presented externally. There are a lot of reasons as to why things are taking place. And you have to turn down the temperature and try to take emotion out of it. You ha- you can't be emotional in any of the uh, any of these types of discussions or circumstance. You find out each individual is insecure in some areas, mm-hmm. figure out what the insecurities are, figure out what they want, um, and kind of you know negotiate your way through it. What I thought was remarkable about Richardson and some of these um, these other folks that I've talked with in the past is that it's much simpler than most people um, will, you know, pretend that it is. Like, it's – a lot of things are very, very simple. And the same type of principles that exist, you know, in a, uh, a relationship um, or in a, you know, in other circumstances will be your method for success in a negotiation of, of that nature. Um, or to break through during the course of a, a conversation when you may think that someone is um, there's no way of possibly finding commonality there there usually there usually is um, but you have to kind of meet the moment move yourself around from a personality perspective take emotion out of it um, and have clear objectives and and goals and I feel that you know we can move forward as a society uh, there's going to be you know, a series of moments um, that will turn this around, um, but I, I don't, I don't see how that's going to take place. I don't think there's any one individual that can come forward and unite this country at at this point. Um, it is going to have to be a a series of events, particularly at the local level, which change the uh, dynamic of absolutism 
and um, also start to uh, reinstill some faith and confidence in our institutions. I couldn't agree more. And I think when you when we realize collectively the damage that that po- po- polemic thinking does. Uh, and the loss of relationships we have with people because of that, when that begins to take effect, I think we'll step back and say, you know, this isn't working. There has to be another way. You know, just to finish, Chris, I was um, I was having a conversation last year with somebody who happened to be a parent of a loved and loved one um, of a um, person served of ours, um, and really, this person disagreed with vaccination. Uh, was um, almost screaming at me and and called me a few names that um, that suggested that I was coming from the right in terms of trampling his individual rights, uh, and you know, and I was you know, sort of engaged in this conversation, um, and after a while, it went quiet, uh, and I hadn't sort of yelled back or anything, of course, uh, and he said to me, "You're English," and I said, "Yeah," and he goes, "Henry Cooper was a great boxer from the 1970s," and I said. He was. He was one of my favorite boxers. And all of a sudden, he he felt that he needed to to reach out for common ground with me. And we had a lovely conversation about boxing, which I rather like. And so did he. And it just restored a bit of my faith in, in human nature that we can't be at each other at this level and intensity forever. There's got – human compassion has to come into it. And human connection is the thing, obviously, that we all strive for. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times in those situations, as we conclude here, I mean, people um, are passionate and extremely emotional and silence can win a moment. And um, people feel the need to to fill and to have the other person be as angry as they are. So, yeah, it's always important to kind of remove yourself emotionally and determine, you know, where that person is at. What are their insecurities? What is the the driving force behind... um, what they're upset about and you're not always going to have success and success can be judged on a relative basis. But yeah, I think that we can, we can talk with one another again, but that has to be the goal. I don't feel that there, the goal is um, engagement on the part of the left or the right at this point. I feel um, anger, ostracism and blame is the the focus that they don't want there's not a desire for there to be commonality because as you're describing commonality is not that hard to find Uh, the principles that we're describing are not rocket science Um, they are basic human um you know principles so yeah i do think there's there's obvious there's there's hope but there's not intent right now to make things uh, better that is peter evers the ceo of bamsey i am chris ryan this has been the humanity first podcast